Tēnā koe. my name is Will Appleby, and this is Animal Matters. On today's show, colony cages are back on the agenda. An ex-supplier was recently sentenced to two years home detention for fraudulently selling cage eggs as free-range. Egg labelling relies on the trust of suppliers, but given how cruel colony cages are, should they be allowed to continue? We also speak to Jake Conroy, one of the Shack 7 who was imprisoned after campaigning against an infamous animal testing laboratory. His story is an important part of the history of our movement, so he shares with us his experience and what he learned from it. Animal Matters is brought to you by Safe for Animals, New Zealand's leading animal rights organisation. We're here to open up for discussion the key issues facing animals. We'll go beyond the news cycle and dive into some of the complexities that surrounds the exploitation of animals. If you would like to support the show, you can become a patron by heading to patreon.com forward slash animal matters. Pledges start at five New Zealand dollars a month. Patrons can unlock bonus content and get early access to new episodes before they're released. Your support will help us to expand the show and talk about more topics in greater depth. SAFE has been campaigning to end the caging of hens for years now, which has successfully resulted in commitments from all the major supermarkets in New Zealand to phase out caged eggs. Countdown and Fresh Choice will be 100% cage-free by 2025, and New World, Foursquare, Pack and Save and Super Value by 2027. Many other supermarkets and retailers have also introduced cage-free policies. This move away from cage eggs has been largely driven by consumer demand. People are far more conscious today than they were before, say 20 years ago, about where their food comes from and under what conditions. How can you tell the difference between a cage egg and free-range egg, though? Well, you can't really. They look the same. You have to trust that the label on the box is accurate. Can we trust the suppliers are telling the truth? The week before last, Shay Chen, also known as Frank, was sentenced at the Auckland District Court after fraudulently selling cage eggs as free-range eggs. His company, Blackwater Trading Limited, which traded as Gold Chick, was a producer and supplier of free-range eggs from a farm in Henderson, West Auckland. Between 2015 and 2017, Chen's company bought more than 3 million caged eggs from other suppliers, then packaged them in his own cartons labelled as free-range, and sold them at a higher price. Chen was sentenced to 12 months home detention and also made a voluntary donation to the SBCA of $50,000. The chair of the Commerce Commission, Anna Rawlings, had this to say on RNZ Checkpoint. This is a pretty serious case in that the claim that was being made that these eggs were free range just simply wasn't true and for that reason we pursued this claim as a Crimes Act charge and the penalty is consequently much more severe than would be available to us under the Fair Trading Act and that reflects the severity of offending here. Ms Rawlings says it's important consumers can rely on producers to provide truthful information. Clearly this case reminds us that all businesses need to operate and advertise in a truthful way but more generally they also need to make sure that claims are clear and they're accurate and they're not misleading and in short our message to businesses is if you can't back up what you have to say about your product then don't say it at all. This isn't the only example where egg suppliers have fraudulently sold cage eggs as free range. 
A newsroom investigation back in 2017 found that Palace Poultry had sold millions of cage eggs as free-range. Their eggs were pulled off the shelves and the company went into liquidation shortly after. The executive director of the Egg Producers Federation was also interviewed for the RNZ piece just played and took the opportunity to promote their Trace My Egg program. He says Trace My Egg, which is voluntary, would stop future cases of fraudulent labelling from happening. We've encouraged our farmers to stamp their eggs, so put like a, two letters explaining what system, so FR for free range, for example. Each farm has a three-digit number, we have a website called Trace My Egg. A customer can look at those, those two letters and the three numbers and find out which farm the egg came from. Trace My Egg, however, isn't mandatory and it's a high trust system that relies on the honesty of the suppliers. Suppliers like the two that we've just mentioned. There's nothing stopping farms that participate in the Trace My Egg program from stamping cage eggs as free range if that's what they're determined to do. So other than an annual auditing system, it's certainly a program that's open for abuse. It's good that Chen has been held to account for his fraudulent actions, although he hasn't completely exited the market. He's since started another business within the agriculture sector. The only way to stop fraudulent labelling of KGIGs in the future is to ban KGIGs altogether. And that's a decision that Kiwis believe in, a recent Colmar Brunton poll found that 76% of Kiwis support a ban on colony cages, which will replace conventional battery cages when they're phased out in 2022. Despite the shift in public opinion, around 3 million hens are still confined in cages every year. Cages so small they can't express their natural behaviours. Colony cages were the subject of much discussion at the Political Panel for Animals, which SAFE hosted in Wellington the week before last. If you're subscribed to Animal Matters, you've likely already listened to the panel, which we published as a bonus episode. The panel was hosted by Charlotte Graham McClay, a freelance journalist who writes for The Guardian and The New York Times. The panellists included Agriculture Minister and Labour MP Damien O'Connor, Green MP Gareth Hughes, New Zealand First MP Mark Patterson and National MP David Bennett. Bennett and Patterson are the agriculture spokespeople for their respective parties and Hughes is currently the animal welfare spokesperson for the Greens. Although sadly, Gareth isn't standing at the next election and will be retiring from Parliament. On the subject of colony cages... Only Gareth Hughes took a strong stance on the subject, but the signals given by all the panellists was that the writing is on the wall for colony cages. Damien O'Connor said no smart person would be investing in colony cages right now. New Zealand First's Mark Patterson wasn't afraid to stand up for his love of rodeo, but even he stated that he wants to tackle colony cages. The bombshell came from Gareth Hughes, who stated as part of his party's animal welfare policy... The Greens would phase out factory farming, which would include a ban on colony cages. This, along with other statements Gareth made during the panel, were a teaser of things to come. Just a few days later, his co-leaders Marama Davidson and James Shaw launched their election campaign and presented their election manifesto. Think ahead, act now. Our green vision for Aotearoa. This document is 52 pages of party policy, which will guide the Greens during negotiations following the election to form the next government. Page 8 has their animal welfare policy, 
which says that they will ban or phase out harmful activities, including the live export of animals, the use of animals in rodeo, greyhound racing, factory farming, flowering crates, and the backyard breeding of companion animals under inhumane conditions. They'll also create dedicated champions for animals by establishing a Minister for Animal Welfare and a Parliamentary Commissioner for Animal Welfare, as well as a boost of funding for animal welfare programs. That's just a sample of the animal welfare policy, which is comprehensive. It's a massive leap forward for animals, one that is truly needed. If the Greens get themselves in the position to form the next government and succeed in having those policies written into a coalition or confidence and supply agreement, that would be massive. Kudos to the Greens for putting these policies in writing and including animals in their agenda. The problem is, currently they're the only party talking about animal welfare. Don't get me wrong, I think it's great that the Greens have made this commitment, but the co-leaders have stated there are a handful of policies that are their priority, and animal welfare just isn't one of them. Unless there's some cross-party support on at least some of those issues... I'm not sure if they'll get across the line. SAFE has campaigned on all of those issues I mentioned before, which are in the Green Party's manifesto. We need a Minister for Animal Welfare, and we regularly talk about the need for a Crown Entity for Animal Welfare. Rodeo and greyhound racing must be banned as well, and intensive farming practices like farrowing crates need to be phased out. Colony cages are SAFE's priority for this election though, and considering some of the signals that the politicians were sending during the political panel for animals, a ban on colony cages is an achievable goal. We need those other parties to come to the table though. It's time to put the chicken before the egg, and we'll be doing just that leading up to the election. We need to send a strong message to our country's leaders that Kiwis want to ban the caging of hens. You can help by visiting safe.org.nz. Next on the show, we'll be taking a look at some of the history of the animal rights movement, specifically the activists who fought against Huntington Life Sciences in the United States. This was a hugely successful campaign, but resulted in seven activists being sent to federal prison. Jake Conroy was one of those seven, often referred to as the Shack Seven, and was sentenced to four years in prison. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So just to begin with, I'm interested in talking a bit about some of your early activism and your experience with that. As I understand it, you helped lay the foundation for Stop Huntington Animal Cruelty, or SHAC USA, which was a grassroots campaign against the infamous animal testing laboratory Huntington. Could you tell us a little bit about your involvement with Shaq and, and the kinds of direct action that, that you took? Sure. Um, Shaq was an organization or really a movement that was spread across 18 different countries, uh, starting in England after a really successful year of campaigning in England. Um, the laboratory was trying to shut down, uh, moved all of its finances over to the United States. Um, so in 2001, um, a, a few folks, including myself, started uh, the U.S. chapter of, of SHAC. Um, so we became obviously SHAC USA or Stop Huntington Animal Cruelty USA. Um, it was a very like decentralized uh, movement. So there wasn't you know leaders telling you you have to do this or do that or you can't do this or you can't do that. Um, we set up our organization as kind of like an information clearinghouse. So we did loads of research on our targets. 
Um, we did, um, you know, we created newsletters and leaflets and posters and videos, whatever people needed to participate and, and engage in the activism they wanted to engage in. We could do that for them. And then we kind of built our own roadmap um, to, to what we felt was the, the most strategic way to shut down this corporation. Um, and we invited and encouraged people to follow along, uh, follow that roadmap with us. But we also realized that like people would disagree with us on that. And they maybe thought that they wanted to do things a little differently. And we would, of course, support them as well, even if we didn't think it was the best idea, you know. Um, so that meant, you know, engaging or, or participating in other people's demonstrations or helping the organizer or come up with resources to, you know, kind of run their own campaigns. And so what that looked like were small grassroots organizations um, and, and activists spread out across the United States and, and around the world um, organizing against this laboratory um, in, its, in, in, you know, in, in a variety of different ways. Um, so the interesting thing about the Shack campaign is that we didn't just protest against the laboratory. Uh, we protested or we went after what's called like secondary and tertiary targets. So instead of just protesting against the lab, protesting against all the operations that lab needs to stay open. So as a business, you need insurance, you need a bank account, you need a board of directors, you need shareholders and people to buy and sell those shares, internet companies, so forth and so on. So if you start going after those companies and the laboratory starts losing all those contracts, it makes it very much, it, it makes it incredibly difficult for them to, to operate both legally and soundly as a business. Um, and because it was such a widely successful uh, campaign, um, the laboratory was crippled, bank brought to the brink of bankruptcy on multiple occasions, crippled financially, crippled in its ability to operate and to exist in the world. Um, and, and because it was very non-hierarchical um, and there was no one dictating what people could or could not do, it also meant people could participate in any way that they really wanted. So I'm in a wide variety of tactics. So, you know, people wrote letters, people sent faxes, if people remember fax machines, um, some of us older folks will remember those. Um, people sent faxes, email was starting to become a thing, internet started becoming a thing in, in the early 2000s, so people were sending emails. Um, demonstrations at offices, demonstrations inside offices, home demonstrations, um, demonstrations at like events, golf tournaments, trade organizations. Um, uh, there was civil disobedience, there was underground illegal active activism going on, like liberations and property destruction. And it was all those pieces all coming together, um, all around the world, hammering one of the world's largest laboratories of its kind that really just decimated it. I mean, you've described a, a, a pretty wide variety of, of, of direct action that, um, people who participated in this campaign, uh, took part in. For a lot of people, and I suppose um, what grabbed the the headlines of the day would have been some of the more confronting um, forms of activism and what some might call violent, whether or not that's the a correct term that was maybe the perception. Would you say that was actually a small minority of what was actually going on, though? And it was done by, you know, decentralized groups rather than, as you say, a hierarchy. For sure. Um, I think you're, you're right. Like, obviously, the more higher profile actions... Um, uh, what the general public might perceive as violence. Um, I don't personally believe property destruction is violent, um, but I know that's an argument that's been made uh, to, to either side. And um, so, yeah, those those actions generally got a lot of the attention. They were in the minority of the things that were happening. Um, but I, like you said, I think that's what captured a lot of people's attention. 
Um, but it was really being done by, you know, uh, I, what I would presume, you know, a minority of the folks engaged in, in, in the campaigning. Um, but because they are underground, because they are anonymous, I mean, you just never know who's doing these things. If it's one person doing all of them, if it's a hundred people doing, you know, one, uh, it's, it's impossible to tell. To put it into context, um, Huntington Huntington Life Sciences. There was handing camera footage of some of the things that were going on inside those laboratories, which um, you know you could only really describe as just utter cruelty. Yeah, they were horrifying. Um, I, I think you can't underestimate the the power that those undercover investigations had um, uh, on the general public, and also really bringing a lot of attention to the campaign. There's five undercover investigations, I think, between 1989 and 2001, 2002. Um, each one horrifying, each one, you know, just absolute cruelty. Um, and on top of that, just really like sloppy science, like data being falsified and things like that. People selling illegal drugs out of out of the facilities and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I, I think those undercover investigations really can't be, you know, underlined enough as as how important they were to the campaign now you you were eventually prosecuted by the federal government um you and six others who as i understand became known as the shack seven and perhaps the ringleaders of this this campaign which as you've just described it's pretty difficult to have ringleaders in a decentralized campaign like that but nonetheless you're prosecuted under anti-terrorism laws what was that experience like um i mean to me, I I can't. It sounds like an utter nightmare. Um, <laughs> but what was it? What was it like? It was an utter nightmare. Yeah, yeah. you hit hit the nail on the head for sure. Um, it was. I don't want to say it's, it was an interesting experience, but it was. It was very interesting. It was horrifying and, and scary and and all the other adjectives. But but you know it was. You know at that point. You know the the part of the story of that story that not a lot of people know unless you're involved is that like. That was, I think that was the 24th time that we had become under fire legally. So we had 23, you know, lawsuits against us. We had a federal uh, uh, civil RICO lawsuit, which are racketeering uh, laws that, you know, said that we were, we decimated this corporation. If we were found guilty, we were going to be fined $12 million individually a piece. Um, you know, we were the subject of slap suits, which are like, um, I don't know if you're familiar with slap suits outside of the United States, but, um, you know, basically these like frivolous lawsuits to, um, you know, to, to silence protesters. Um, so uh, and on top of all the other criminal charges that people have gotten with being arrested or doing at protests so forth and so on. So by the time this one came around, it was, it was just like, Oh, here's, here's another one. And all, all they're saying is their whole case is like, Oh, they're just suggesting that like we posted a bunch of stuff on the internet, which we did. So like, okay, what's the case here? Like this is a slam dunk on for us. Um, but as time goes on and you start to realize the scope of, of the investigation and the FBI, um, you know, it was, it was their largest investigation of the time. They sunk so many resources, five times more resources into our case than their second largest case at the time. Um, they considered us the biggest threat to the security of the nation, um, all sorts of preposterous things. Um, but, you know, when you decide to fight back against the, the government in court, they have a 95% success rate. So they um, almost win, they win almost every single time. So it's intimidating to walk into a federal courtroom. You have 
Chris Christie was the prosecutor at the time who went on to run uh, for U.S. president in the last U.S. elections against Donald Trump um, as a Republican. He's the prosecutor. You have um, the full weight of the U.S. government, of the FBI, and, and so forth and so on, Homeland Security, um, all coming against the, what was six grassroots activists who didn't have a dime to our name um, and, and really no way of defending ourselves um, against, you know, 555 90-minute cassette tapes full of, of recorded telephone conversations, countless hours of video surveillance of, of outside of our home, in our office, at our de- at demonstrations, um, tens of thousands of, of copies of our of emails and web page printouts. I mean, it was just massive amount of what's called discovery uh, evidence that they could potentially use against you. Um, literally put inside the two rooms at a courthouse and be like, all right, here's the case, figure out what we're going to do. We better do it quick because the, the, the courts, the, the trial starts shortly. Um, and yeah, it's intimidating. You go in there and you do your best, but you, you don't have a very good uh, chance of winning. Yeah. All right. How long ago was it that you saved that, that term? Um, I was sentenced to four years in prison. I did 37 months in two federal prisons um, starting in 2006. I got out in 2010 or like end of December 2009, put into like a halfway house, like a transition house, um, which is, you know, I was there for six months under their supervision. And then I had three years of uh, probation, but they really monitor you really heavily of everything you do. Um, and, and that ended in 2013, I think. Right. And do, do you, does it still impact your life? For sure. Yeah. I think at this point it impacts my life more emotionally and psychologically than anything else. Um, you know, you, you know, the campaign went on for in the U S it went on for about, you know, five and a half, six years. Um, and that's a lot to, to handle when you're being, you know, you're, you're trying to run a campaign, but also, you know, you're being every single thing you do say, Every place you go is being monitored and surveilled by the FBI um, to use against you is very, you know, it takes a toll on you. Um, not to mention like, you know, going into a federal prison system. And of course, everyone's experiences are different in prison. Uh, mine, you know, I was in a pretty rough spot. You know, I was in a pretty tough prison that was very much like what you see in the movies and, and read in books about U.S. prisons. So there's prison gangs and, and race riots and, and stabbings. People get beat up all the time. Um, and just trying to figure out how to navigate all of that um, is is a heavy thing to do. And so when you get out, you know, I experienced a lot of PTSD, post-traumatic stress, um, which I still, to a certain degree, deal with now. I mean, it's not as bad because I did a lot of work. Um, but yeah, I mean, those systems are designed to break you. Um, they don't want you to come back and keep disrupting, you know, the, animal issues and environmental issues and they want you to be quiet and take your place and 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 do that type of thing so, so looking back on what you did and the methods that Shaq used do you think it was effective strategy yeah i think that's the big question isn't it i think i think um i always talk about the the difference between a long-term and a short-term strategy and I think, you know, the, the short-term strategy is kind of, in my opinion, it's rooted in the idea of like, you go as, as hard and as fast as you possibly can to shut down or achieve what you want to achieve without, you know, and, and if you can do that and you can win, um, you don't have to worry about public perception. You don't have to worry about 
you know, the public being on your side. You don't have to worry about the government coming after you. You don't have to worry about lawsuits. You don't have to worry about being arrested. Like you'll win. And up until that point, that had worked, particularly in the UK, where, where the campaign started, where they shut down beagle breeders and cat breeders and, and rabbit breeders and primate breeders. And they kept moving and kind of practicing, if you will, to get bigger and bigger targets. And so I think like the campaign to shut down Huntington Life Sciences was organized as a short-term strategy campaign. Right? And, and they almost did it in England. They almost shut that lab down in a year um, until it was rescued and moved to the United States. And we kind of set up the same way. Um, with the idea of like hit them as hard and as fast as you possibly can, consequences be damned. Um, and I think that works. I think it it did work. And I think it, a lot of people say, well, you know, the lab you didn't close the lab, so you, you know it didn't work. But I think the counter to that is it actually worked too well. Is that we were so successful that you know the government, of the United States, and the government in England threw their full force behind stopping us. It was so successful. Um, but I think that what happened was as the campaign went from one, two, three years into four, five, six, seven years, there needed to be a shift into a long-term long-term game. And that didn't happen. And eventually all that caught up to us, obviously in really big ways, uh, you know, and, and we all went to prison for it. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I think like there were some like a lot of crazy actions and tactics being used. And I think, you know, some, some of which we supported and some which we didn't. But I think, like, as, as part of a short-term strategy, it, it worked. Um, but they were able to hang on long enough that to kind of outplay us in that game. I'm sure you don't like, you don't like talking about um, Shaq all the time, even though that's probably what you're <laughs> very well known about. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's a really important campaign. I know I kind of get the impression that people are probably sick of hearing me talk about it. But I think it's I think that that period of time in the grassroots animal rights movement from 1996, when consort beagle breeder campaign kicked off all the way until Shaq ended, um, is a critically important time to look back on. And there's so many lessons to learn. And I don't imply that like we did everything right. We made lots of mistakes, right? Like, you know, there was a lot of lot of things to learn, both good and bad. And I I, I really want people to to remember the history of our movement, not just the Shaq campaign or the breeder campaigns, but the things that came before and the things that are coming after. Um, because that's how we get bigger and better. But I, I certainly don't want to imply that like I have all the answers or Shaq was had all the answers. But um, yeah, I think it's I think it's important to talk about. No, I agree. I mean, if like what kind of things did you learn from like if you were to do not even something similar, but um, another launch into another campaign or, or just kind of general learnings? What did you do? You think you took away from that experience? Um, it, it kind of solidified some of the, the things I'd been thinking prior. You know, I got started in activism in like 1996 and I kind of jumped in really quickly into the idea of corporate campaigning, pressure campaigning by seeing those breeder campaigns in England and thinking, why aren't we doing that in the United States? And, and slowly over the next few years, a lot of people did, and it was really targeted against the fur industry and shutting down fur stores. And you know, we shut down a couple of fur stores in Seattle where I was living at the time, Seattle, Washington in the Northwest corner of the United States. And, um, so I think the Shaq campaign, like just solidified that, that notion that like pressure campaigns have the power and the, or the ability to be really powerful and make really big change. They can be risky and they're an awful lot of work, but they had so much more. I felt so much more uh, like a sense of accomplishment and, and moving forward than I ever did doing the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of outreach tables. And, and stalls and handing out literature, which I think is a really important tactic, but that's not how I was coming from. That's not how I was coming at it back, you know, back then it was like, 
oh, if I can just get enough people to go vegan, then I'm going to change the world. And it just doesn't work that way. I think that's the unfortunate reality. Um, but, but I think like the Shack campaign and, the, and even just moving on to what I'm doing now, which is I work with an environmental organization doing pressure campaigns against some of the largest corporations in the world, including ones that Shaq went after, um, just with not quite as much fervor so we all don't go to prison. <laughs> but uh, seeing how pressure campaigns work, uh, you know, in different settings, and they don't always have to be super radical. They can be mellow. They can be mild. They can be a lot of negotiating. It can be a lot of, you know, friendlier tactics and, and, and more about community growth and so forth and so on. Like you see how all these things work. Um, and I, and it also was like a big reminder as to like, they just don't really happen in, in the animal rights movement, the grassroots animal rights movement. Like, and that is something that I find pretty frustrating. But. And we want to keep you out of prison. <laughs> For sure. So speaking about the kind of activism you do now, um, tell us a bit about that. Yeah. Um, so I work with the environmental organization called Rainforest Action Network. Like I said, we do pressure campaigns. Uh, we work kind of like in three tiers, one uh, around rainforest destruction. So we're, we've worked for the past eight years in Indonesia around the palm oil industry. Um, uh, we do climate issues. So we go after um, banks, similar to what we did at Shack, um, pressuring banks to divest and stop supporting and, and uh, funding uh, fossil fuel extraction projects like pipeline projects. Um, and then we also have a third bucket that we work in, um, community action grants, where we um, give about two hundred and fifty to $450,000 worth of small grants to um, indigenous communities and frontline communities around the world. Um, Cause it's our belief that, you know, the people in the communities know what's best uh, and, and to and for their communities and also know the best way to fight back um, against these corporations. So we believe in amplifying and, and supporting those communities the best that we can, which is giving the money to, to do their activism. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it feels a little different. Obviously it's not as radical. It's not as, you know, doesn't always, it's not always as exciting because it's a lot more like nuance and negotiation and, you know, but, um, I think it's a good, I think it's a good example of seeing how, you know, we, we, we can continue to build these roadmaps to, to a better future. Yeah. And it sounds like an example of some of that longer term campaigning that you, you touched on a little bit more before, not quite so hard and fast as, you know, a short term campaign might be. So a little bit more nuanced. For sure. Um, but, but, you know, it, depending on what you want to fight for, I mean, they, they do work. I mean, we, we do a lot of like corporate policy change, which again, isn't something I'm like super passionate about, but I do see that like, that is one way of like helping to make change. I think I think the one issue with it is like a lot of corporations are like, oh, we'll just make this corporate policy change and then get these people out of our hair and then go back to the way we were. Um, and I think that's what's kind of special about the organization I work with is that we stick on, you know, we stick to it and, and like hold our feet to the fire and we check in constantly to make sure that they're adhering to these policies. But, you know, we've gotten some of the, you know, one of some of the world's largest corporations like Cargill to 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 uh, do what we wanted them to do, Disney to do what we wanted them to do. Um, really big palm oil um, companies in Indonesia to change some of the world's largest banks to stop, you know, investing in pipeline projects and, and tar sand removal, mountaintop removal, things like that. So um, there's successes there, and I think they're really important. They just aren't as like sexy as like a person <laughs> jumping the fence and running away with a beagle. You know? Yeah, <laughs> but they're but they're equally as important, and I think that's that's the hard part to recognize. I really like that you're also 
um, helping grow those indigenous voices as well and and seeing them as allies you've sp- i know you've spoken a little bit about intersectionality in the past and and you believe there needs to be more of it in the animal rights movement could you tell us a little bit about your ideas around that yeah um i i as like a white hat cis man i don't feel super comfortable like calling myself intersectional so um um it feels a little co-opty for me but i like no no like hate for anyone else that does um just for me i I prefer to use the term collective liberation which feels a little a little different um the idea that like all these different movements and liberation struggles are intertwined um so for me that like you know earth liberation and human liberation and animal liberation are all equally as important um and and while we might not be fighting side by side um, with one another currently I, the hope is that like you know we all kind of meet up in the end or hopefully closer than that <laughs> to fight together uh, and support one another and, and help grow each other's communities into something bigger and better um I, I think it's a pretty uphill battle for um animal rights folks i think we are on the fringe of the fringe when it comes to, to social justice movements um partly because our own actions and, and politics and partly just because, you know, fighting for non-human animals is, is something that not a lot of people think about. Um, and, and unfortunately I don't think a lot of people take seriously, but I think there are a lot of opportunities there for uh, growth and to learn from one another and support one another and build each other's communities up. Um, and it, I've seen it happen in, in, in a few occasions in the animal rights movement and it worked out really well. Um, I think there's a lot of pushback in it because people don't have a full understanding of what intersectionality or collective liberation is. People automatically see that as you're replacing an animal rights movement with human rights issues. And that's, that's just a misunderstanding of, of what people want and what we should be doing. Um, and I, beyond like educating people about that, I'm not really sure how to change that. Um, but it, which is it, frustrating, you know, to be told that like I'm trying to destroy animal rights movement because I want people to convince is just not preposterous to me. But um, I don't see how we win without the idea of collective liberation, without joining forces with other movements, um, without um, growing each other's communities. The idea that like we all none of us are free unless we all are free, I think is is really um, like a cherished statement to me for me. Um, but um, I, I think like we desperately need that in this movement in order to win. But I, I think the hard part of it, and I'm going to keep rambling until you tell me not to, but I think the hard, I think the hard part for people is that it, it, it requires us to really reevaluate our, our moral baselines that we put into our, into our community of if you are not this thing in this community, it's vegan. If you're not vegan, then you're not good enough. Like your rest of your politics don't count rest of your activism doesn't count. You can't be an omnivore. You can't be a vegetarian. You, a lot of times you can't even be plant-based. You have to be vegan. Um, and if you're not, I don't, you don't, don't even talk to me type of thing. And I think that, um, I think that is a big reason why, um, we are the fringe of the fringe. Um, I, I always say that I think like, you know, you have to meet people where they're at politically. Um, and I think at least in the United States, we have way more people that are opposed to factory farming, way more people that are opposed to zoos and aquariums uh, and circuses than there are vegans in the United States. 
And a lot of those people are doing the work and, you know, they're shutting down factory farms, they're shutting down inten- intensive confinement you know, units in the United States, but they're not vegan. And that feels weird for sure. Like, why would you fight for something that you were later are going to eat and participate in anyways? Um, but I think like starting to build those bridges with those communities is vitally important. I think we spend so much time trying to create vegans, but when really in the reality of it, in my opinion, like creating a vegan doesn't create an activist, it just creates someone that is changing their lifestyle. Um, but I think if we create activists and get them fighting for the, you know, the dog in the pound or the, the elephant in the circus, you know, they start or the dog in the laboratory, which is what we did with the shack campaign. Um, then people start seeing that connection between the cat and the dog and the rabbit and the, the, the elephant, uh, with the, the chicken and the pig and the cow. And they're like, Oh, I get it. Um, and then, so eventually I think the more activists we make, eventually the more vegans will end up making. Um, but that's a challenge for people particularly well it's a challenge for vegans yeah it is and i i completely agree where you're coming from i've definitely heard the the comments that yeah if you're if you're not a vegan then you're not you know a real activist or you're not you know you can't be part of this movement because you know reasons the way i've had it described to me is that you know the systems of oppression that oppress women and people of color and um indigenous people are you know oftentimes the same system of oppression that we use to exploit animals i think yeah as you say it's important to see those other movements as as allies in the struggle um and we've got a, we've got similar statistics here in New Zealand. We did a recent poll that found that about seventy six percent of people in New Zealand are opposed to factory farms, which is you know that's a massive group of the country. You know that's that would you know topple a government basically. So you know it's important I think to to find those links and find those allies to um, to further your objectives because working in a silo, you know you're. Um, you know, you can perhaps convince some people to go vegan, but you're not necessarily going to create effective change. For sure. I mean, it's, it's, it is that question like, cool, if you have 76% of the population that are opposed to factory farming, in theory, if you could get all those people or even a fraction of those people on board, you could end factory farming. I mean, you know, <laughs> in, in New Zealand, I mean, it'd be a tough battle, but I mean, think about what you could do with 75% of the population, or would you rather have a bunch of people that like to eat at vegan restaurants? You know, it's like, yeah. You know, we can have both. Yeah. But I don't think you I don't think you know, the idea that like I'd rather have 75% vegans and still have factory farms that are exporting their products outside of your country doesn't really make any sense to me. So what what are your thoughts about the the direction the animal rights movement is heading in or or where do you think it needs to head in? Um do you see similar you know, do you see people make mistakes that you might have made in the past or yeah, what are your general thoughts about the way that the direction the movement's going in? Yeah, I think um, I think the animal rights movement and history in general is pretty cyclical. Like, I think you know we, we're running in this kind of big circle, uh, which is a bit frustrating, and it's particularly frustrating in the animal rights movement because I, I think the lifespan of an animal rights activist is not very long. I think Tom Regan, you know, talks about the revolving door of the animal rights movement where people just come and go constantly. Um, so it's hard to like get people on board and to skill people up and get people to learn about the history of our movement and why it's important to learn about the history of our movement, our movement um, before they leave in a few years. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like not everyone obviously leaves after a few years, but it's, you know, we have a fairly young movement all the time. Um, that being said, I do see that like you know, a, a strong pattern 
from when I first got involved to what's playing out now. Um, I think, you know, when I got involved, it was kind of in this period of this uh, rotation of the cycle where it was kind of like a lot of us were doing vegan outreach, but I think the vegan outreach was getting a little frustrating. It kind of became a little more radical, which was kind of like kind of weird. Um, the whole, like, you know, being a little more aggressive with your act, with your outreach. And then that kind of shifted into this thing, like, well, talking about veganism just isn't doing the trick. We need to be also going after, um, industries. And so in the nineties, at least in the United States and, and throughout Europe, there's a big push against the fur industry. So we kind of saw that swoop of, of outreach activists becoming more interested in protesting against an industry. And, um, it still felt a little, a little like buckshot, like it was kind of all over the place, um, besides just going after the fur industry. But I think that eventually started to take uh, a new form when those breeder campaigns started happening in England and people started realizing, oh, we can start targeting specific places together and, and close them and win. And it keeps getting bigger and bigger. And as I said, the breeder campaigns into the shack campaign. And then unfortunately we had a major speed bump, but which kind of in theory brought us back to the beginning where we started seeing a big uptick again in outreach where people wanted to wear the ties and hand out the chicken, the vegan chicken nuggets and be very presentable. And then we kind of got to this more aggressive form of outreach, like anonymous for the voiceless um, style activism. And now I think people are like, what's the point of this? Like, why are we aggressively advocating for veganism? It doesn't make much sense. So people are getting more into that kind of like robust, broad campaigning with things like meet the victims, or we see people, you know, locking down slaughterhouses and going after animal ag, but it's not very focused. It's very, again, very scattered buckshot. So I'm, I'm hoping that we're kind of on that swing back into like, we're at this point in this movement again, where it's like, all right, I, we get the idea that we need to go after industry, but okay, now I guess if we do something a little more focused and we do it together, we can be wildly successful. So I'm, I'm hoping for that like next revolution of, of, of the animal rights activist act, uh, animal rights movement. But we'll see. I could be wrong. It wouldn't be the first time. So. And hopefully you don't go back to prison. Um, <laughs> let's avoid that. That's the part I would definitely avoid for sure. <laughs> Um, look, I think you the um, what you've what you've given you've given probably more than what anyone could possibly dream of uh, to the animal rights movement. You know, you served, served time in a federal prison, which, as I say, sounds like a complete and utter nightmare. Um, yeah, well, I appreciate that. Yeah, so it, it's a pleasure speaking with you. It really is, and um, I think it's an important conversation to have about you know the history of the animal rights movement. I think history in general, you know, you got it's important to learn about where we've come from to know where we're going, um, and. That's the same for the AR movement. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's just some absolute incredible stories in the animal rights movement where, you know, I talk to like my friends in other movements and they're like, y'all did what? In the, you were doing what? Like, that's crazy. Uh, you know, but you don't hear about them much because they're not on the internet. You know, they were in books and fanzines and newsletters and things like that. So, um, you know, I, I, that's why I always encourage people like seek out these people that inspire you and learn from them and, and stop putting them up on pedestals they're not heroes they're just everyday people that did amazing things like be friends with them talk with them organize with them ask them questions like these people are more than happy to answer these questions so um and and as you said the more we can learn i think the better off we're going to be you've been listening to animal matters this podcast is brought to you by safe the animals new zealand's leading animal rights organization and produced by myself will appleby 
Make sure you subscribe to Say Across Animal Matters on whatever your favourite platform is to listen to podcasts. If you're listening on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners to find the show. If you want to support the show, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash animal matters. Until next time, kakite anō.